You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Thomas Talbot is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Willamette University in Salem, Oregon. His book, The Inescapable Love of God, is widely regarded and has been extremely influential for many, including myself, by helping us to see just exactly how strong a case can be made for a distinctly Christian vision of universal salvation. His rigorous training in logic shows itself very powerfully in his writing in the way he is able to expose the problems we have inherited in Western theology's picture of God. I am personally indebted to Dr. Talbot for writing the afterword to my book, Grace Saves All, for reading my book in a formative stage, and for helping me to navigate an important passage in my own spiritual journey towards a vision of a God whose perfecting love will not be defeated in the lives of anyone. Welcome, Professor Thomas Talbot, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, let's begin, as you do in your book, The Inescapable Love of God, by looking into the way you encountered Western theology through growing up in a traditionally conservative Christian family, attending a Christian school, and then how all of that formative background was challenged when you went to Portland State and encountered the first serious critique of your Christian faith in a philosophy class. What was the critique you ran into and what happened as a result of it? Well, uh, let's start with uh, my family background. Okay. Uh, Just uh, to get started here. Um, I was raised in a fairly large family of six children. And incidentally, my wife was raised in a family of six children. Hmm. And we're both the second born in a family of six children. That's interesting. in any case, a lot of families are larger than ours. Our families were large enough for the children periodically to have squabbles, of course. Um, but one of my uncles had, and his, his wife, my aunt, had a family of 11 children. The important thing was that in our family, it was just unthinkable that one child would be favored over another. It was unthinkable that one would be preferred over the other or loved less than the other. Mm -hmm. So I would call it in that sense, a loving family. Like many families, my parents would, would apply some criterion of non retributive justice if they had to come in and and resolve some sort of a squabble. But none Mm -hmm. of us ever had any sense that our parents cared for me more than the other or the other more than me. And my mother in particular had a unique ability to make a child feel welcome, make a child feel as if she was on that child's side And this was illustrated as uh, she went into teaching. She taught grade school. 
the interesting thing is she went to college to get to finish her college degree at Portland State University at the same time my older sister attended there and they both graduated in the same year that was a big story in the newspapers and everything you know this mm -hmm. mother and her child are graduating from this college at exactly the same time well she got her teaching uh, credential and she was very successful in dealing with so-called problem children it was she always said there is no such thing as a problem child and in her case it was right in fact the school would put uh, children that were problem children into her section of a class and they would be no problem at all it seems but anyway that loving family background instilled in me with respect to God when my mm -hmm. mother made it clear that God loves each of us even as a parent loves a child. Well, she made it very clear that God loves everyone. And, and you know, I learned at my mother's knee a God that's described in, uh, for example, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, he wills or sincerely desires the salvation of all, every single descendant of Adam. I wouldn't have put it that way when I'm five years old, but it was mm -hmm. that kind of a God that I learned to believe in at my mother's knee. Then you end up going to college and you run into a challenge. Well, actually, uh, first I went to high school after five. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that school was a pretty fundamentalist school. It was similar to many fundamentalist churches. There was a kind of rigidness, a kind of judgmentalism, and a kind of self-righteousness there. And I don't say that critically, because I see self-righteousness everywhere in the social media, for example. But a good Christian, as I've said on many occasions, turns out to be someone who doesn't smoke, drink, dance. Roller skating was iffy, and we didn't have dance. We didn't have dances at, at our high school to celebrate anything. And uh, a good Christian doesn't play cards or attend Hollywood movies. So it's probably a school that a lot of people listening to this podcast would not even recognize. But it was a great experience for me. I made a lot of friends, lifelong friends, and uh, some of the most unique personalities that I've ever encountered in any context. And the theology that I encountered there was not very uh, sophisticated. Mm -hmm. I mean, a Calvinist, would be simply someone who believes in eternal security. Once saved, all saved. That's about how we distinguish a Calvinist from uh, an Arminian, for example. An mm -hmm. Arminian would be somebody who could lose his salvation by making the wrong free choices or something like that. So that was how I understood the dispute between Calvinists and Arminians. But it was also just assumed, and I didn't think much about this, that, that there would be an eternal hell. And I did read C.S. Lewis when I was in high school. 
I read The Problem of Pain, and I read it with great excitement. And I read other things like The Great Divorce uh, in high school. And I kind of just sort of absorbed a kind of free will theodicy of hell. People are free to resist it forever. But God is still loving because, because he's not going to uh, uh, reject himself, reject anyone. But we are free to reject him and to reject him forever. So that was sort of my high school uh, experience. Incidentally, I just have to say this, that I ran with a, a group of rebels <laughs> who let it be known that we sometimes did attend Hollywood movies. <laughs> well, yeah, so your, re your, your rebellion was a pretty tame one in a way. Well, I wasn't really that rebellious. I didn't feel rebellious because my parents didn't restrict us from going to movies altogether. So uh, I didn't feel as if I was being rebellious, mm -hmm. but I just used the term uh, rebels because <laughs> we didn't care about other people knowing that. So from, from this point, now you move on to Portland State. Right. And there were growing tensions. I did continue to think very highly of C.S. Lewis, thought he had the answer to a lot of the growing tensions that I was beginning to feel. But it came to a sort of a head when a pastor of mine showed up at the university group that I attended when I was in college. And this pastor was a, was a very sincere Calvinist, and I have to say, a wonderful person. I was the one that couldn't. I got into an argument with him after the meeting, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing, that God would foreordain before the foundation of the world that some people would be lost forever, that he would determine that. It was his choice. If it was his choice... I couldn't imagine him being any different from my parents if it was their choice to either save me from drowning or uh, to, and they had the power to prevent my drowning. I had no doubt what they would do. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and we got into a big argument uh, afterwards and I probably wasn't as nice a person as he was. <laughs> well, not... Even now, I I can't understand either the logic or even the or the biblical uh, uh, argument for such a view. But the interesting thing is, he turned out to be the pastor of the church of my wife, and so uh -huh. I had lots of interaction with him. He married us, and he he was I think he has passed on, but he was a wonderful person. But I couldn't believe that he held those views. And, you know, I didn't know anything about Western theology at the time. Then when I started looking at the theological tradition, I started to see his view everywhere. In fact, I can remember it was, it was sometime in, in college that I read uh, Romans 9 for the first time. And I thought, oh, no, this is just like this Calvinist minister uh, talked about uh, I mean, he hated Esau and loved Jacob. He answered the, the questions about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy in the same way that this pastor did. 
I fell into a deep depression. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Of course, you know, it's who important. Is this? What? Who was this, the theologian you were reading? No, it wasn't. Uh, it was the Bible I was reading in Romans 9. Oh, in Romans 9. Because that's what, you know, the Calvinists always refer to. What they don't tell you is that's the first stage of an argument that lasts, that extends through Romans 11. And they, they stop reading at the end of Romans 9. If they would re keep reading, they would get the conclusion that God has imprisoned all in disobedience in order that he might be merciful to all. Right. Romans 11.32. Yes. Anyway, uh, so uh, I kind of defended during my college days a basically Arminian view. Now, that's misleading if you think of the Arminian as someone who believes that you can, you can be saved and then you can become unsaved. But uh, it's the idea that we have free will and free will will determine our use of our free will will determine exactly, uh, well, will determine our ultimate future in heaven mm -hmm. or hell. And of course, I hadn't at that time thought about things like, well, why do you have a time limit at the point of death? Particularly when some people die at two and other people die at 80 or 90. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have to say 90 because I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> The, the idea that there's a time limit and there's, you know, it's appointed unto man once to die and then then comes judgment. That's the only verse that I ever had tossed at me as far as I can remember to try and justify a time limit on the love of God. But if God is the same yesterday, today and forever, how can you put a time limit on his justice? I mean, well, his justice or on his love either. Mm -hmm. Those tensions continued to grow uh, in college. But even when I went to uh, seminary, at Fuller Seminary, they didn't really get resolved there. Although I think it was in, in my seminary, seminary days that my younger brother, four years younger than I, uh, was at Wheaton College, and he encountered George MacDonald, and he sent me because at this time, there were no copies of his unspoken sermons available. But he encountered uh, these writings of, of MacDonald, and he sent to me a copy of MacDonald's sermon entitled Justice and his uh, sermon uh, entitled The Consuming Fire. And this eventually, not immediately, but eventually had a remarkable effect on me. Because this was the first time I realized that, you know, there are different interpretations of the Bible that abound. One of my early associates or colleagues at Willamette who taught in the Spanish department once commented, man, it's as if people believe or believe different religions when you start looking at Calvinism, Arminianism, and uh, or even just Protestantism and Catholicism. There are many, many different ways of putting things together. And that made me start thinking about, well, how do we interpret the Bible as a whole? Now, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in the languages of the Bible. Neither am I an expert in the historical background of its various documents. But it seems to me that there are 
vastly different interpretations of the Bible as a whole that have adherent to which many excellent scholars adhere. And that becomes, you know, a real kind of controversy. If the Arminians and the Calvinists have such different theological views, how are we going to interpret the Bible as a whole? Did you become aware at this time of people in the early church who had had views along these lines like Gregory of Nyssa and Origen and others? Actually, I think it was after I was in graduate school that I started to encounter that kind of thing. But there is, you know, just as I'm not... I don't pretend to be an expert in the languages of the Bible. Neither am I a professional historian. And I don't have the kind of exhaustive knowledge of church history as someone like David Bentley Hart seems to have. But I certainly developed this impression that the early church differed kind of radically from the imperial church. And I mean, my impression was that in the early church, it sought to achieve unity through positive confessions of faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Whereas the imperial church sought to achieve unity through the condemnation of error. Let them be anathema. And the persecution of those thought to be an error. And the demarcation seems to be at the time of Constantine's conversion. And Constantine, I don't want to badmouth him, but uh, Leonard Verduin in The Reformers and Their Stepchildren writes the following about Constantine's conversion. When Constantine came into the church, he did not check his imperial equipment at the door. No, indeed. He came in in with all the accoutrements that pertain to the secular regime. He was not just a Roman who had learned to bow to the Christ. He had been Pontifus Maximus hitherto, the high priest of the Roman state religion, and he entered the church with the understanding that he would be Pontifus Maximus there too. And just as his sword had flashed in defense of the old religion, so would it now flash in defense of the new. So when Constantine became a Christian, he did not think of himself just as somebody who now understood Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. He understood himself to be the head of this imperial religion and in charge of it himself. That seems to be what Verduin is describing. Now, others may have uh, a different view of Constantine. As the church continued to develop, and and these are just impressions of mine. As I said before, Mm -hmm. I don't regard myself as a professional historian or even someone who has a great knowledge of church history. But when you get to Justinian, that's a couple hundred years later, Constantine's reign uh, was between 306 and 337. And it certainly seems to be true. I, and I don't know that any professional historian would disagree with this, that this marked the beginning of imperial interference with church matters and church doctrines. But Justinian 
And he reigned uh, as the uh, Byzantine emperor between 527 and 565. And so you had 200 years of development, but the uh, Roman Empire has started to break down uh, in the West. A lot of countries in the West sort of slipped away from the Roman Empire. There's an interesting analogy between Justinian and Vladimir Putin. Now, there's a lot of things that are disanalogous, and we we should mark that. But just as Putin seems to have this great desire to restore the previous Soviet empire, so Justinian had this desire to restore the Roman Empire to its former glory. Now, there are going to be a lot of disanalogies as well. Uh, for mm-hmm. one thing, Justinian did not have the kind of weaponry, the 21st century weaponry, that would allow you to, you know, smash cities, kill civilians from the air or with missiles and things right. like that. And that's the same with Hitler. Justinian, even if he wanted to, could not have killed six million Jews. But of course, that's because technological development at the time was uh, very different. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, before he became converted on the road to Damascus, did not have available the kind of technology that uh, Hitler or Putin have. But given that he describes himself as the chief of sinners, I don't think he would doubt that he was no better than Hitler or Putin. He just didn't have the wherewithal to achieve the kind of destruction that Hitler and Putin have managed to achieve. So Justinian wanted to restore the Roman Empire to its former glory. I know he collected all of the laws in the empire into one codex of laws, and he seemed to also want to to sort of straighten out the religion of the empire as well and purified at least how he saw it should be purified. And he did some other things as well. For example, in 529, he closed the school of philosophy in Athens that had been around for 900 years, and he made heathen worship a crime punishable by death. So is there anything different from that in the ability to kill six million Jews. John W. Barker, in a book entitled Justinian and the Later Roman Empire, wrote, among all the targets of Justinian's persecutions, it was those classified as heretics who suffered the most. And Joseph Colin Eyre, in a source book for ancient Christian history, wrote, according to Justinian's scheme of church government, the emperor was the head of the church in the sense that he had the right and duty of regulating by his laws the minutest detail of worship and discipline and also of dictating the the theological opinions to be held in the church. And Willison Walker in uh, A History of the Christian Church wrote, Justinian succeeded more fully than any other of the Eastern emperors in making himself the master of the church. 
And in 543, Justinian issued 10 anathemata, condemning the idea of universal reconciliation. Here's what one of them said. If anyone says or thinks that the punishment of demons and impious men is only temporary and will have an end, and that a restoration will take place, let him be anathema. Right, and that and that that imperial anathema doesn't just condemn universal restoration, it would also condemn the idea of annihilation. There was to be no end to oh, the yes. torments. In fact, it, it, it also condemned Origen's idea of pre-existence of the soul. It would condemn many things. By the time of the Reformation, if you didn't believe in the Trinity, you could be killed. Justinian also called, or convened, I should say, the Fifth General Council in 553. And there he condemned Theodore of Opsuestia, who was a very wonderful person. But it was he condemned almost a century, more than a century after he died. And the supposed head of the church, Pope Vigilus, had argued that no one can lawfully judge anew anything concerning the persons of the dead. But he was later, a year later, forced to accede to the Justinian's ruling of the council. Justinian's Anathemata was expanded from 10 to 15 and published along with the rulings of the Fifth General Council. Now, whether or not these were part of the rulings is actually controversial. But. My understanding is that the anathemas that became attached became attached historically to the memory of the Fifth Ecumenical Council, but they, there's no record that any of those anathemas were discussed at the Ecumenical Council. The name of Origen was condemned at the Council, but there was no mention That's as right. to why exactly Origen was condemned. And probably even when they're thinking about Origen's doctrine of the uh, pre-existence of souls, that had become connected with the ways others had elaborated on all of those doctrines, the Originists who had taken his doctrines and, and elaborated on them in ways that Origen probably would not have anticipated. Well, the other thing is he may have been condemned for his belief in the pre-existence of the soul rather than his belief in a universal restoration, which many saints believe. At the there time. was certainly a big there was certainly a big tangle of ideas that had all become had all kind of attached themselves to origin. I think we can understand how the doctrine of hell as eternal punishment would be very useful to a uh, an emperor that was seeking certain kinds of power. And that might lead us to this whole idea of the politics of terror. I've listed several, just a few specific examples of how the doctrine of hell as everlasting punishment has contributed to terrorism. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that it also would be it, it would also be helpful to ecclesiastical powers as well. Political oh, powers yeah. and ecclesial powers would both benefit from being able to terrorize the general population with the threat of eternal punishment. Right. Just the fear that that engenders. 
But the Christian authorities in Zurich ordered Anabaptists drowned in hideous parody of their belief. That I got from Wilson Walker's work that I cited earlier. Mm -hmm. And the Spanish inquisitors murdered perceived heretics on a regular basis. The Christian authorities in Geneva executed Servetus over green woods so that it took three hours for him to be pronounced dead, even though he hadn't committed any crime in their city. And of course, even the Puritans in Salem, Massachusetts, hanged young women charged with witchcraft. And it's interesting how, to go back to what you were saying about why the belief in an eternal punishment would be very useful to the church officials as well as the state, Here's what Theodore Beza, a close friend and associate of Calvin, wrote. The contention that heretics should not be punished is as monstrous as the contention that patricides and matricides should not be put to death. For heretics are a thousandfold worse criminals than these. You might want to ask at this point, why? What makes them so bad? Well, here's how Urbanus Regius, an associate of Martin Luther's, answered that question. When heresy breaks forth, the magistrate must punish not with less, but with greater vigor than is employed against other evildoers, robbers, murderers, thieves, and the like. The Donatists, which is a word that he used for uh, the Anabaptists, an insulting term that he tried to use for the uh, Anabaptists. The Donatists murder men's souls, make them go to eternal death. And then they complained when men punished them with temporal death. And that's kind of funny because given the, the theology being expressed here, if you put a person to temporal death, you're putting them to eternal death. So that's kind of funny. He says, Oh, they're complaining that we put them to temporal death, but they're murdering men's souls. Well, you're murdering, according to your own theology, you're murdering their souls as well. All who know history will know what has been done in this matter by such men as Constantine, Marianus, Theodosius, Charlemagne, and others. And that's true. Well, that certainly does help explain why the doctrine of eternal torment became so cemented into the Western theological tradition. Yes, and more than it did in the Eastern. Well, as, as you continued to think about all of these issues, you came to a useful way to use your background in philosophy to sort all of this out through the use of three inconsistent propositions, all of which are affirmed by the Western Christian tradition at large, but only two of which may be held without creating a logical problem. So what I'd like to do now is walk through these three inconsistent propositions and to see what pictures of God they reveal, as well as the challenges which come with each picture. So what are the three propositions and what are the three pictures of God that they yield? Well, the first deals with the love of God and his will, his redemptive will, with respect to uh, salvation. It, is, it, it involves the claim that we mentioned earlier, that God at least sincerely desires or actually wills the salvation of each 
human being that he created. There's no human being that uh, God wills should perish. He's not willing that any of them should perish. So that's the first one. It has okay. to do with God's redemptive will. Now, uh, in the first edition of the inescapable love of God, the second proposition is God has the power to uh, achieve the redemption of every person whom he sincerely wills to save mm -hmm. or to bring to reconciliation. That I realized after I wrote the first edition that all of the texts that people cite for the truth of that second proposition, and it's the Calvinists that typically emphasize that proposition, that mm -hmm. God does have the power. Well, they actually support, or seem to support, at least to a naive reader of the Bible, would seem to support the more uh, rigorous that God will successfully achieve the salvation of every individual that he sincerely wills or sincerely desires or wills to save. That's the way it's expressed in the second edition. In the second edition, you have it, Almighty God will triumph in the end and successfully reconcile to himself each person whose reconciliation he sincerely wills or desires. Yes. And the reason for that change is that some people would argue that there might be some good that a perfectly good God, even a perfectly loving God, might want to achieve. And therefore, though he has the power to reconcile a person, every person to himself, he may decide not to exercise that power. I don't think that works very well, but to avoid all kinds of difficulties here. I went to the one, well, look at these texts that are typically cited on behalf of Proposition 2. These texts support the claim that he will be successful in achieving the salvation or the reconciliation to himself of each of these persons. Mm. And then the third. Some people will be separated from God forever and never reconciled to him. And so what's interesting about these three propositions is that a person just from the surface reading of the Bible could find reasons to affirm all of these. That's right. You will find texts in support of each of them. For example, the third one, parable of the sheep and the goats. Some uh, are destined for eternal life, but the others, I guess the goats, are uh, destined for an eternal punishment. Thessalonians 2.9. Yeah, yeah, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Yeah, that, um, how does it read? Uh, let's see. Uh, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And Ephesians 5.5. 5, be sure of this, that no immortal or impious man, no one who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And of course, you know, with respect to Proposition 2, uh, Psalm 115.3, God is in the heavens. He does not... He does whatever he pleases. And Isaiah 46, 10 through 11, 
My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. You can find texts that initially will appear to support each of those propositions. And in addition to that, you can find reputable scholars who cite each of them as a fundamental teaching of Scripture and not uh, a peripheral teaching. But they can't all be true. At least one of them must be false. So that means that we have to decide which texts we're going to use in order to uh, interpret other texts. And in general, there are two uh, basic themes. One is the theme of God's love, his triumph, and the ultimate destruction of all evil. And the other theme is that of his supposed wrath and eternal punishment, which would mean that some evil never gets destroyed. It may be rendered impotent, but it's not going to, there will still be evil people that are not have not been destroyed in the sense of being reconciled to, uh, to God. In fact, it seems to me that in Paul, especially when he talks about the old person, literally he will use the term old man, the old person has to be destroyed in order for the new creation in Christ to be revealed. So a lot of the texts like uh, uh, the Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 1.9, the idea of destruction there could easily be interpreted as a redemptive idea. But one set of texts, those that emphasize God's love and his ultimate victory over sin and death, is going to have to be interpreted in light of another set of texts, those emphasizing his willingness to subject everyone to uh, some sort of punishment, at least. We've got these two themes, and either you're going to interpret the theme of God's ultimate triumph and uh, victory in the light of the texts that seem to suggest ultimate separation from God and a lack of victory, or you're going to have to interpret them the other way around. Well, it seems to me that what you end up then with is you end up with three pictures of God, the Calvinist or the Augustinians would affirm that Almighty God will triumph. Number two, Almighty God will triumph in the end and successfully reconcile to himself each person whose reconciliation he wants. And number three, some human sinners will never be reconciled to God and they'll and therefore will remain separate forever. So then they would have to, so the Augustinians then would affirm two and three and have to explain away number one that all human sinners are equal objects of god's redemptive love and then the arminians would affirm number one and number three they would affirm that all human sinners are equal objects of god's redemptive love but then they would also say that some will never be reconciled so they have to explain away number two that that almighty god will triumph in the end and successfully reconcile to himself each person whose reconciliation he sincerely wills or desires then the universalist affirm one and two all human sinners are equal objects of god's redemptive love and he does want to reconcile with them and number two that almighty god will triumph in the end and successfully reconcile himself to each person which means they have to figure out how to deal with proposition number three that some human sinners will never be reconciled to god and will therefore remain separated from him forever. So it, all views end up having scriptural support, and then they end up having scriptural challenges that they have to deal with. 
Yeah, that's right. I think that's the fundamental issue here. And in addition to that, the Calvinists claim that because God is sovereign, there's no chance that he will fail in uh, successfully achieving the plan that he has with respect to salvation. And the Arminians claim that you can't challenge God's love and the extent of God's love and his desire to save all. So if God has a desire to save all and he successfully achieves his desire, then some interpretation has to be given for the third. And what I want to claim with respect to the third proposition is that really there's no reason to take it seriously. There's no biblical reason to take it seriously. And why not? Well, for one thing, the punishment that is referred to as eternal punishment seems to be the kind of punishment, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a history here, that it's the kind of punishment that is reformative, corrective. I mean, what if we read Matthew, Matthew 25, 46 as everlasting correction? So the Matthew, in Matthew 25, 46, we have the word, uh, it's generally translate, translated everlasting punishment. But that word everlasting, even in English, has different connotations. And in the Greek, aeonius has different connotations as well. Yeah. So do you want to say anything about the word aeon or how, everla- how the English word everlasting or aeon can be translated differently? Well, literally, the word aeonius is an adjectival form of the noun aeon. Ion, I should say, means something like that which pertains to an age or uh, age enduring, something that has limited duration. As mm-hmm. when, for example, Paul sa- speaks of a mystery which was kept secret for long ages. That's the RSV translation, but is now disclosed. Uh, a mystery that's now disclosed uh, has not endured forever. And yet, it's the word Ionius that's used there. So that's a clear case where the, the, the word Ionius cannot mean everlasting. But with respect to the term everlasting, as you pointed out, there are lots of contexts where it means different things. If I speak of an everlasting struggle, then probably I'm speaking of a struggle that supposedly lasts forever. But an everlasting correction or an everlasting change need not be a temporal event that goes on forever. It might be an instantaneous event, in fact. Um, well, aeon, uh, ion means an age, and ionius means age enduring, or that which pertains to an age. Well, it seems to me that there are lots of the different ways that people can take the meaning of the word everlasting or eternal and different ways that people can understand the concept of what punishment might be. It could be restorative or corrective punishment. So when it comes to the, the third proposition about some never being reconciled to God, that usually has to do with ideas that God's punishments are re- retributive and eternal and not, not restorative and just lasting as long as they need to. So there's different ways that you can, I think, challenge that third proposition. Now, 
one of the big reasons that people usually object to uh, Christian universalism is that it seems to deny people's free will. That sure, God could make it so that everybody would ultimately choose to be saved, but if God does that, then then that would be bad because that would mean denying people's free will, and people should have the free will to reject God if they if they want to. So shouldn't somebody be able to reject God forever if that's what they sincerely want to do? What you're talking about is what many philosophers call libertarian freedom. And I can't speak for all every philosopher that identifies as a libertarian, but I haven't found a single philosopher who uses the term libertarian freedom in order to justify the kind of claims you just made, who has a sufficiently adequate explanation of what libertarian free will is. And one of the most important things, I think, is that free will, whether libertarian or some other kind, Mm -hmm. requires a minimal degree of rationality. Someone has to pass a relevant threshold of rationality in order to qualify as someone who's free. And if you've passed that relevant threshold of rationality, if that rationality is a necessary condition of acting freely, it's inconceivable to me that a person having passed that threshold could make a perfectly well-informed and free, and therefore minimally rational, decision to reject God forever. God would always have the ability and the wisdom and the know-how to allow the consequences of stupid action, stupid choices, to uh, correct the person's misjudgments that led to it in the first place. Well, that was the argument that you made about the ultimate incoherence of the libertarian free will point of view was really helpful for me because that was my barrier to being able to affirm Christian universalism because I I had this problem with free will. But once I understood that the libertarian free will view had serious problems with it, that helped me to reevaluate everything. And I I finally came to see then that, that God being loving would not allow my insanity to be the final word on my destiny and so would keep working with me until I was free in the sense that I was able to see rationally what was in my best interest and then to act upon it. Yes, that's a very good statement, I think. And it's not that the libertarian conception is wrong. It may be that freedom requires a certain kind of indeterminism, but that indeterminism cannot be such that it overrides a minimally rational judgment or the ability to make minimally rational judgments. Uh, It seems to me that as long as we retain that necessary condition, the one that most theists ignore when they try to define freedom they think it's enough to say, well, it requires indeterminism. But you could, you can make an undetermined choice in a context where you could have chosen otherwise and still not be free. 
What if I was to say that, in my view, that when it comes to the libertarian free will, what it always requires is that I could always freely make another decision. But the problem comes at the point when I am completely illuminated and aware of what my decisions really mean, and I'm able to see that one decision is 100% to my benefit and another decision is 100% to my detriment, I'm still free to make that decision. But at the point where I'm completely illuminated, I have no reason to do it because I'm aware that that choice is completely to my detriment. And so that's where, to me, the libertarian free will argument runs into a problem. Well, I agree with that. In fact, I can hardly add anything to it. The important thing I think that you have brought to this discussion over the years is you have brought a philosophical background and you have been able to analyze the problem of libertarian free will. And also through your philosophical background, you've been able to help us to see that there are these three inconsistent propositions that the Western Christian tradition has generated and how we need to work through all that. And you've shown how each of these different propositions, each of these different positions, the whether it's the Calvinist, uh, Augustinian view, or the Arminian free will view, or the Christian universalist view, they all have to deal with some challenge one way or the other. But on the whole, what I came to see is that it's easier to deal with that proposition that some human sinners will never be reconciled to God and will therefore remain separated from him forever. What I came to see is I would much rather work with trying to look at scriptures which seem to point in that direction and look at them differently than I would have to deal with the other problems that I would have if I went with the Arminian point of view or if I went with a Calvinist point of view. So for me, your book really helped me sort through all of these things and worked with a lot of very important scriptures. So I think for a lot of us, it was your book and your scholarship that helped us to look and to see things differently. And I would just like to say on behalf of very many of us that we have appreciated your scholarship and your contribution over the years. Well, thank you very much. That's great. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.